539 the time on a Thursday morning. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Good morning to you all. Rob Marinko, good morning. How you doing? Good, Royal. And Randy, good to be here. Randy Wang, got uh, lots of sports uh, ready for us later today. Lots of crappy sports. Well, you know, winners and losers. The Clippers are back to being the Clippers. Yeah, yeah, that that's... Uh, I tell you, it's amazing. The Clippers, when they play, when they look up at those banners and they see all the Lakers banners just <laughs> circling them at the Staples and not a single – I mean, the fact is they're a whole lot better than the Lakers. But, I mean, they don't even have one banner that's got to – LA fans don't care how good the Clippers are. I guess. I guess that's right. You know, we're, we're just never going to – How long is Blake Griffin out? About another three weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's just bad news. Pretty cool the way we jump over those cars in the commercials, though. Yeah, I mean that. I couldn't. Maybe do that's that. why you need surgery. <laughs> you know, I I could try five times, uh-huh. and I don't think I could do that. Yeah, I just I just don't think it would be in the hmm. cards. So my gosh, uh, the bad news, the hits just keep on coming. Uh, you, you just can't. Tim Weinbrenner said it. You can't write this. Debbie Reynolds dying within uh, what was it? Just two days. After Carrie Fisher passed One away? One day. The next day. The next day. Oh, yeah. my gosh. She was actually, when she became ill royal, she apparently was with her son, Todd Fisher, right. making funeral arrangements when she began to feel ill. Oh, my gosh. It's just amazing. Well, we're going to have... Uh, we're going to have uh, reporter Jim Rupin shortly to uh, to talk about Debbie Reynolds' death. And, and actually, we're going to have Dr. Dahlia on later in the morning, which I think is a really good idea because I know a lot of people are wondering, my gosh, is this a you know broken heart kind of thing? What is the physical connection uh, between grief and, and extreme stress and, and, there's and a, there's health another, issues and death? Another crisis nobody's talking about. Who's going to be left in Hollywood to hate Trump? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, the We're talking about Celebrity Apocalypse 2016. So uh, speaking of Trump, we're also going to be talking this morning about the fact that he's kind of coming across like our, our second president. It's it's a little unusual. I mean, in the past, occasionally presidents-elect have been a little aggressive and kind of jumping the gun, but not like this guy. I mean, when it comes to terrorism and Israel and, and nuclear power and so on. Well, what's he supposed to do, just sit there and twiddle his thumbs till January 20th? Well, that's what most of them do. I don't know if it's uh, being deferential or respectful or they're just kind of busy uh, getting, the, getting the team going. But most presidents uh, in waiting aren't as, uh, as aggressive as this guy. This, but, this guy, he's making deals. He's saving jobs. He's cutting costs. And he's not even in there yet. Yep. As a matter of fact, he's doing such a great job that even Barack Obama came out and said, uh, I think I can still beat him yep. <laughs> if I'm just allowed to run one more time. <laughs> so we're still so nervous. We're going to be talking about some fallout from the Israel situation. Uh, of course, uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, not taking the uh, thing by Kerry lying down yesterday, the lengthy speech. He's <laughs> Did saying, he stop Kerry's talking at some point or is he still you know, going? Were you amazed by that? I mean, I felt like I was in Havana in 1968 listening to a 10-hour harangue by Fidel Castro. When does an American politician do that, just go on and on? You know, setting aside any kind of criticism or bias about Kerry, that's not, you know, today's era, the soundbite, you know, you make your point, you get on it. Obama is a master at that. What, did, what was he thinking of? Who did he think wanted to listen to him talk for an hour or more? It was just a real weird attempt at trying to convince people that the U.S. is not anti-Israel because of their actions in the U.N., 
sitting there while 14 members of the Security Council condemned Israel for yeah. wanting to well, fine. survive. So you and make exist. your point in a persuasive, pithy way, but to just drone on and on like that, I mean, it's like I could see a, a criminal defendant. Well, Mr. Terwilliger, this is your third DUI. I'm going to have to sentence you to listen to John Kerry's entire next... No, <laughs> no Your Honor, not no! that. Anything, anything but, but that. that. I mean, in today's... Uh, this day and age, I can't imagine. I think he's so clueless. As I said yesterday, I think he wants to be president. I think this is his way of getting his mug uh, out there. So the Rose Parade's coming up. Apparently, uh, the deal is if, if January 1 falls on a Sunday... Not going to happen. Wouldn't be prudent. They move it over to the second, and that's going to help us because everybody's going to get rained out over the weekend. It seems archaic because, I mean, you know, in the old days, blue laws, shops would close on Sunday. But I guess Pasadena has embraced this for over a century. You know, if it's Sunday, we don't do it. Is it strictly a religious thing or just sort of custom? No clue. I think everyone wants to have their holiday, and it sucks that it's on a Sunday, so give me my Monday. That's true. This year, that just happened to be Christmas and New Year's have fallen on uh, on the Sundays. Yeah, but Christmas was on a Sunday, and the day after Christmas, nobody was working. Mm -hmm. Nobody was on the roads. Everyone had that off, too. You got to have your holiday. Exactly right. 544, The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, we are going to hear from Jim Roop for the reports on Debbie Reynolds. Meantime, good morning to you, Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the roads? 606, The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Happy Thursday to you all. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Hey, with the new year upon us, we thank you for choosing 790-KABC for talk about the day's news. With context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like, count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Jillian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 News crew for enlightening relevant news and compelling entertaining talk. News talk evolved 790-KABC. We uh, got a big hour coming up. Uh, we're going to have the lawyer for the... Uh, Defendant in that Amazon hot tub murder case. Uh, we're going to be talking about the mall brawls breaking out across the United States. What a weird phenomenon that is. I mean, kind of kind of reminds you that uh, uh, the bargains at the malls are just a little too uh, too tempting sometimes to uh, for people to. Uh, Go through the experience uh, without just really going nuts. I mean, like yeah. ten or fifteen fights from Connecticut to Oregon, California. That's the- Darwinism right there. That's survival <laughs> of the fittest. Those, if you're dumb enough to go to the mall this time of year, you don't really need to live. The investigators are looking into some Snapchat uh, trails back to perhaps some organizations that wanted to see this happen. So that's uh, going to be part of that probe yeah so snap what there was a call for on snapchat to go and start beating people up at the mall yeah uh, apparently they possibly, fight, you yes. know fight down at the at the food court uh, that that kind of what happened to thing. just taking selfies why do we have to get it to this level <laughs> so we can let it go viral that we're taking video of you beating somebody sad commentary on humanity and we're going to talk in a second about uh, the fact we kind of got co-presidents going here uh, trump and obama they're both such forceful personalities uh, uh sort of dueling uh, at the top but first, I wanted to follow up on that uh, story we briefly uh, addressed at the last uh, end of the last hour. They, you know, the gal, she's driving uh, under the influence, I think twice the legal limit, and she hands the sippy cup uh, full of wine to her five-year-old, you know, really clever, you know, while the cop is walking up to the car. So, okay, she's guilty. Now let's contrast that 
to a guy in Northern California, Fairfield man, Joseph Schwab. He's 36. I'm not sure if he's so guilty. You, you be the judge, Rob Marenko. He's driving along, and I'm not saying he's perfect. He's weaving in and out of traffic. He's, he's almost causing a few collisions. So there's, there's an issue here. So the cop stops him, and uh, she, she thinks that he is under the influence of a drug. Uh, and so what happens is that uh, inside the car... Uh, the officer looks, and there are a bunch of things in there. There are powders and workout supplements. Turns out they were all legal, though. Okay, no no problem there. But uh, she checks him out. His pupils are dilated. Uh, he passes the sobriety test, but she notes he was very amped up, very agitated, very combative. And, and so the cop was convinced that he was under the influence of something. All right? So she arrests him. She takes him to jail. He agrees to a blood test. The results come back. Hmm, cocaine? No, 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 no cocaine. Cocaine. THC, no marijuana, no opiates, methamphetamines. What about that? Maybe he's a Breaking Bad fan. Mm -hmm. No. No. Oxycodone? No. Everything comes back negative, except caffeine. Ah. Positive hit for caffeine, and that is what caused this this problem, apparently. There's a toxicologist who's weighed in, and he's, he says, yeah, caffeine is certainly a drug, but it's, it's often overlooked because it isn't usually associated with impaired driving. I mean, when you think about it, let's face it, caffeine has saved countless lives on the highway compared to, uh, to alcohol. Without caffeine, none of us would have made it today to work alive. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> would have crashed so, on the 10 freeway like that pile up on the 110 right now. So all of this, the reports are in, and what do they do to this poor guy? They charge him with DUI. They don't charge him with reckless driving. They charge him with driving under the influence. And it's been a year now, and it's working its way through the system. And the, the district attorney says, well, you know, I'm still for, moving forward to the DUI. It's, uh, I, I think it was some other drug that wasn't on the test that influenced him. Oh, well, that's good, solid evidence. Uh, this <laughs> guy's going to walk. I, maybe, you know, the, the arrest is still hurting him financially, professionally. Uh, his, Where they he, went wrong is, and you as a lawyer, correct me if I'm wrong, Royal, but... They should have charged him with reckless driving if Absolutely. he almost caused wrecks. Absolutely. Period. But, but the DA had a hunch, you know? It's kind of like double indemnity. How many, how, just G. curious. Robinson. How many cases are won on a hunch? Yeah, good, good <laughs> question. I, I don't think, uh, I think they had a hunch against Leroy Baca, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it didn't quite work out. So anyway, two two sides to the, uh, to the DUI coin. So uh, two presidents. It seems like maybe we've got a couple of co-presidents going on here. I mean, Donald Trump, of course, is not shy about anything, but he has weighed in on Israel. He's weighed in on terrorism. He's weighed in on nuclear proliferation, and he's contradicting Obama in a lot of ways. It's, it's kind of a weird dynamic, though. Unlike all the other folks that Trump has been feuding with for the last year and a half, where he just blasts away at them, and when they push back, boy, you know, he counterpunches. There's a little element of being deferential to the president. After all, he is the president. But, you know, there, we have kind of a longstanding tradition that the president-elect just sort of hangs back, but not in the case of Donald Trump. And one, one historian, Douglas Brinkley, that I know has uh, been on the show with Doug uh, before, he says in some ways Trump is neutering the Obama administration. Uh, they've avoided personally attacking each other, but behind the scenes they're working to undermine each other. And Obama is not going away quietly. Just a couple of days ago, he announced a permanent ban on offshore oil and gas drilling uh, along wide areas of the Arctic and the eastern seaboard. 
uh, invoking an obscure law from the 50s, and he's claiming that Trump has no power to reverse this. The White House officials are claiming a, a similar privilege in their decision not to veto the Security Council's resolution involving Israel. Uh, and so Trump is weighed in on that. He, he clearly is opposed to what the, uh, what the guy is doing in the White House. In the last week, Trump has written on Twitter, the U.S. must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capacity. And he's accused China of an unprecedented act in seizing U.S. Navy underwater drone in the South China Sea. And then after the Pentagon and the Chinese negotiated the drone's return, Trump says, oh, no, the United States should just let them keep it. So this, this is a pretty interesting situation where, uh, where you actually have kind of a, a, a polite feud between Trump and President Obama. Uh, Trump has been respectful when it comes to Obama, but but definitely he hasn't been hasn't been shy. When you look into presidential history, it is not unprecedented. Future presidents have gotten involved. For example, when Richard Nixon uh, was elected in 1968, even before he, he took office, he dispatched his aide Henry Kissinger uh, to meet with Soviet officials to talk about nuclear proliferation and so on. But I think Trump has uh, has taken it to a new level uh, and. Uh, so we got another three weeks to go before the big inauguration. 614 The Time here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Well, as promised, uh, we want to get into this bizarre story involving the, uh, the hot tub uh, Amazon murder case. And we are fortunate enough to have a, a lawyer involved in the case representing the defendant, uh, Kim Weber. Kim, welcome to KABC. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning from Northwest Arkansas. Well, good morning, and uh, just what what an amazing story. Just to give folks a little bit of the background, um, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas is the location. It happened last November. Uh, yes, people sir. find Victor Collins' dead body in the backyard. Uh, his body yes. was floating face up in a hot tub, and his left eye and lips are dark and swollen. Uh, the resident who called 911, your, your client is James Bates, is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so James Bates, the resident of the home, calls uh, 911. He tells the cops uh, he and a few work buddies, including the, the dead guy, Victor Collins, had stayed up the night before. They're watching football and have, having some drinks. Bates allows the, to let the two of them crash at his house. Uh, he, he tells police, and then he went to bed. And then after he wakes up, uh, he claims he spotted uh, Collins' lifeless body in the spa. And the twist is this Amazon Echo... A uh, smart home device uh, is is kind of a witness in the case. So, uh, as we say, Kim Weber, you're you're lawyer for the accused here. Uh, pick it up for us and tell us where the story goes. Well, the only correction I have to your um, facts is well, two. First of all, I, I don't believe it's a murder. It's a tragic, tragic accident. My client and the deceased were very good friends, and this was something that um, that my people on my team. Um, all will testify that this was a this was an accident. This right. was a man that was this was a man that was um, incapacitated in a hot tub with a hundred and three degree temperature, and his injuries are consistent with someone slipping and falling in the tub multiple times. Right. That aside, on the Amazon Echo issue, and that seems to be the hot topic right now. The Bentonville Police Department issued a warrant for the contents of the Amazon Echo as far back as. December of 2015, and they actually issued two warrants. And it's my understanding. Now, remember, I'm not privy to the search warrants and 
I get the returns, okay? So I may the see information the that's warrant. provided in response to the warrants is what you get. Yes, I get the information in response. Now, I have heard that Amazon has provided the subscriber information, um, but I have not seen that, so I can't tell you that for certain, but I have heard from media, uh, from several sources that, in fact, it did return the subscriber information, but would not ret- would not provide any additional information due to the fact that the search warrant was overbroad. I can tell you it's vague, full of supposition. It doesn't describe with any particularity what is what is what they expect to find other than it may have information related to the case. Um, I can tell you that we are not concerned with the release of the information, but as a defense attorney, and my client agrees with me totally, this is a privacy issue. Yeah, and that's, okay? that's the interesting part. And let's, let's bring folks up to date on this, because this is such a brave new world. We're talking about it with Kim Weber, the lawyer who's representing this, this fellow, uh, the accused James Bates in the, uh, the so-called Amazon uh, Echo murder. So here's the deal. You buy this product from Amazon. It's called the Echo. And basically, it's a device that sits there, and you say, hey, um, Echo, or they've got a name for it, uh, Alexa. 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 They say, hey, Alexa, you know, what's the capital of New York? And Alexa says, the capital of New York is Albany, or we go, the population of Beijing or whatever. And the idea is when you talk to it, it, it's a voice-activated thing, and it starts to record information. And there's an untold amount of information from the house that's recorded there. So it's sort of this repository of evidence, you say to yourself. And yet, then you say, gee, you know, we don't wiretap everybody's uh, phone 24-7. Nope. What should be available? Uh, you know, is there a serious privacy issue or not? So, I mean, is it your thought that it might be reasonable to uh, for the authorities to get access to some uh, component of the information? I mean, when you think about it, Kim, maybe it's exculpatory. Maybe there's something on this uh, Amazon device uh, where somebody's walking around the house saying, well, I'm going to frame James Bates and kill this guy and make it look like it was James' fault. I mean, you don't really know what's on there, right? And that's what I said um, earlier, that if this information is released, it will not be harmful to our case. My client is innocent, and if it has exculpatory information, we may, in fact, be the person down the road asking Amazon for information from our client, which is a lot different from the governmental agency going into our homes and finding out what we talk about in our homes. You know, I, Alexa is like Siri on our, on our iPhone. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I've asked Siri questions and she's got it wrong. It could be my accent. But how many times is Amazon going to get the information wrong? And if there is information collected, how reliable is it? Amazon did send out a caveat that it does have, you know, it is not a, 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 a system that, that is reliable in that it could have misinformation, the recording. And what if you had, what if you said something to your cat? Okay. What if that is to your cat that's picked up and you say something not so nice to your cat? Who's to say they can't use that and spin that against your client? I, again, am not concerned about my client in this case. I'm concerned about the ramifications should Amazon release this information about cases in the future. I'm not concerned about mine. I really applaud their efforts in protecting their clients and their 
I guess not their clients so much, but their their purchasers of the the equipment. It's, it reminds me of the iPhone in the San Bernardino case, right? Where they did not turn over the information. But an iPhone is something, even if encrypted, my own IT expert can get into that information, can get into a computer. I tell my clients, hey, don't text, type, or make any recordings on your phone that you don't want your mother, your priest, or law enforcement. This is a different situation. You're in your home. Kim, we got a question from Rob Marenko for you. Kim, I'm just curious, what are prosecutors alleging your client did exactly? They're alleging that my client had an altercation with his friend and that that altercation caused the man to drown. The man was heavily, heavily intoxicated with a BAC of 0.32. He was a very overweight man. And of course, um, maneuvering this large hot tub, it's a very large hot tub with a chafe lounge that you have to maneuver to get over, to get out. And it'd be very difficult sober for somebody my age, for instance, I'm almost 50 years old, to, to get out of the hot tub. The entries are consistent with someone trying to get out of the hot tub, slip and fall, but they're alleging that my client did that to his friend. There's no motive. There's no DNA. If there was a fight between my client and the deceased in the hot tub, my client's DNA would be somewhere. We're talking okay. with Kim Weber, a lawyer for James Bates, accused in this Amazon Echo story. It is a problem in terms of privacy and how broad it can be. But, you know, the, the law, you can come up with some weird results. I remember, Kim, there was a case out of Florida several years ago where uh, a guy goes into an office and he's arguing and he yells at the guy who's behind the desk in the office, you know, I'm going to kill you. And then he shoots him dead. And uh, then the police later get a handheld recorder that had been running all the time in the dead guy's desk. And there it is, the confrontation. They recognize the voice. They know who killed him. They arrest him. uh, They convict him. And guess what? He wins on appeal because he argues Florida has a law, like California, where it's illegal to record a personal conversation without telling you. And so the dead guy violated the law by recording the conversation, and therefore it was excluded. Now, in your case, you know, you got same similar kind of privacy issues. Kim, what is your strategy for if there is something exculpatory on the Echo device that would, would say, okay, James uh, Bates is innocent, how are you going to get that if not through uh, a, a maybe an overly broad uh, search warrant from the cops? And right now we're letting this fight go between because we're letting this fight between Amazon and the Bentonville Police Department play out. And, you know, they may be able to fashion a a warrant that is, uh, what what Amazon considers legally binding, and they may comply. But again, I'm not concerned about what will be on the Amazon Echo. I don't think anything will be on there. But with your analogy that you made, that was in an office. Again, they had the Recording uh, Wireless Communications Act that, that that you have in California. And our in our jurisdiction, I can record anything I want without a second party knowing about it. All right. Well, this is one this is one bizarre case. Kim Weber, a lawyer for James Bates, appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts uh, here on KBC. I don't know, Rob Marenko. I um, I, I might might want to call BS on that one. I think if I uh, were a, a seeker of truth, I would say, gosh, you know, let's find out what's on the little uh, device. 
Um, but uh, according to this criminal defense attorney, uh, she, you know, she she doesn't really want the search warrant executed. I have a feeling that maybe she's a little worried about what might be on there. You know, like well, a, a, a horrific fight. Yeah, no, be- that exactly. between her client and the dead guy. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we happen to have an Echo, an Amazon Echo, in the house. Um, I don't want to know what it's recorded on you. <laughs> well, here's the deal about that. I don't know that it's recording anything. I. I get it when you say, "Hey, Rob's Alexa." Rob's a man of few words. If you say, "Alexa, what what's my horoscope today?" or check the horoscope, I could see it recording a question, but I don't know if it's always recording your voice. Oh, you don't think these devices are always recording everything that I you say I to don't. send them to advertisers to then send you ads on? Oh, you might like this because you mentioned coffee. Here's a coffee maker. Well, I have an idea. Well, Let's get Jeff Bezos on on the air next hour, ring him and, up, and he'll please? answer the question. Let's ring him Six twenty-five. The time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C Royal in for Doug. Hey, Bill Thomas. How are the traffic? How's traffic looking? Eight oh six. The time. Talk radio seven ninety K A. BC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Thursday to you all. Hey, with the new year upon us, we thank you for choosing 790K ABC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew, and Mike Catherwood, and Julian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 news crew for enlightening, relevant news and compelling, entertaining talk. News talk evolved 790K ABC. Quite the day yesterday, Rob Marinko, with uh, John Kerry entertaining us all with a, it was more than an hour-long speech. Oh, God. I don't know on, why on. he felt that he had to talk for so long. I mean, I don't know, Winston Churchill or somebody said, you know, how, how difficult it is to, to be brief. You know, it's easy to write sure. uh, something very long, but to boil it down, did he really think, folks— other than professional journalists who are you know, obliged to, to sit there and listen, would actually well, pay it, attention? it took him an hour to try to put lipstick on a pig, the pig being that decision at the U.N., and uh, he failed miserably. Pretty amazing. Well, we are delighted to uh, have on the program with us Rabbi Marvin Heyer of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles to give us his approach to this important issue. Rabbi Heyer, welcome to KPC. How are you? I'm okay, and it's a pleasure to be on. Well, thanks very much. Uh, boy, you know, uh, Bibi Netanyahu didn't mince words. He called Secretary Kerry unbalanced. Uh, what was your take on Netanyahu's uh, objections to Kerry's speech yesterday? Well, I thought that um, I, I watched the entire speech of more than an hour, I believe an hour and ten minutes. I think it was very unfortunate. It's ill-timed. It's almost unprecedented that in weeks before a new president is taking office and will be in charge of foreign policy and the directions of our country to drop something like that from an outgoing administration. He, they could have done that three months ago. Right. And, you know, why do it in the, in the weeks before? That's the fir- but more the fundamentals of the issue itself. What the secretary dwelt on is settlements. Now, people watching or listening would think that that is the only obstacle to Middle East peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, settlements. We have to say two things. First of all, 99.9% of the people who live in settlements are ordinary citizens, get up in the morning, take their kids to school, go to work. They are not involved in shootings. They are not involved in violence. But more important than that, it's such a misdirection. For example, 
The United Nations has discussed the word settlements for almost 20 years. They keep talking on the subject of settlements and pushing the notion that it's an obstacle to peace the Middle East. Not once in the history of the United Nations has the Security Council convened a meeting where the agenda would be the following. We know that Hamas, a terrorist organization, is in charge in Gaza, where 1,800,000 Palestinians live. How do we dislodge Hamas from Gaza? Because you have two separate Palestinian states, one in Ramallah under Mahmoud Abbas, the other in Gaza that doesn't talk to Mahmoud Abbas. He hasn't visited Gaza for almost nine years. Um, because Hamas is committed to the total destruction of the state of Israel. So it's bad enough that even Mahmoud Abbas honors terrorists by naming squares, public squares, schools for the terrorists. But Hamas is in charge in Gaza. How can the United Nations Security Council answer this question? Why have you discussed settlements for 20 years? And you can't find three hours to convene a meeting on how we can dislodge a terrorist organization from Gaza. Yeah, it's a good question, and I, you know, I've been hearing people try to answer that question because others have posed it, and uh, nobody's really come up with a good one. I do want your—we're uh, talking with Rabbi Marvin Heyer of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. I do want your reaction to a controversial part of John Kerry's message uh, yesterday. Let's listen. It's kind of provocative. What do you think he meant by that? What's well, your reaction? What he's saying is that there, there won't be a two-state solution. He's absolutely right. The reason there's not going to be a two-state solution is because right now we have a three-state solution. One separate state run by terrorists in Gaza, so there would be two separate Palestinian states with Israel like the accordion in the middle. Right. Well, now, what about the Trump administration? What do you expect to see different uh, coming out of the Trump administration compared to what we've had under Obama for the last eight years I in terms of Middle East that, policy? I think that the Trump administration is going to ask that question. They're going to say, of course, we want to push the idea of a, of a two-state solution, but we are going to demand that either the international community force Hamas out of Gaza or we're going to say to Israel, do nothing. We're not going to ask you to commit suicide. The Trump administration is going to say to Israel, we understand your position. You, 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 who are you dealing with? On one side, you have Mahmoud Abbas, who names schools and squares for terrorists. On the other side, you have the Hamas terrorists, part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Look what they did in Egypt. Why would Israel want to do anything to change the situation until that is rectified? How did the relationship between Netanyahu and Obama, in your opinion, get to, to where it was? I mean, for, for, the, for the leader of Israel to come over and basically give a speech to the joint session of Congress that, that blasted the president's uh, position to, to essentially lobby, to, to try to talk sense into the congressman about the Iran deal. What was the source of the antipathy between those two leaders? Did it just start from the beginning when Obama uh, took office? So in your view, what was the origin? No, I think that, first of all, President Obama, he, he, he got the Nobel Peace Prize, but 
there really wasn't an accomplishment for that Nobel Peace Prize. Well, it was what, two weeks into his administration? And That's obviously correct. he hadn't and done so anything. He, Nobody he, in Sweden said he deserved it based on two weeks' work. I guess it was a hope thing. Uh, right. It was kind of odd, it, it was, but no, they were it, expressing it right. the hope. It was odd, and I think that President Obama, I can only guess, thought, look, what, I, what I'd like to do is solve the Middle East crisis between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and then everybody would say, that is a real accomplishment uh, worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize. And so he set himself to do that. But w- he did it, unfortunately, in, the, in a time of history when there were two separate Palestinian entities. And rather than focus on the difficult question, how do we f- fix the fact that when Ariel Sharon withdrew from Gaza, Israel occupied Gaza, then Sharon said, we're withdrawing, give the Palestinians an opportunity here, take over, show me that you can build a peaceful society, make Gaza like one of the major international tourist attractions, forget terrorism, and we're on the road to a two-state solution. But what did they do? Hamas was elected as the government in Gaza. And then Hamas said, we don't recognize Mahmoud Abbas. So Netanyahu is, you know, the electorate in Israel would hang Netanyahu. I'm saying this, you know, not not literally. Would literally hang him if 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 he compromised with two states in the middle. Look what Bougie Herzog. This is something that your listening audience needs to know the leader of the opposition in Israel, the Labor Party, Bougie Herzog, has said, you can't have a three-state solution. He would never agree to it. So let's say Netanyahu is out at Bougie Herzog. The dream of the Obama administration would be the prime minister of Israel. He would tell the United States, sure, we're going to make compromises on the settlements after you get Hamas out of Gaza. And there's one Palestinian democratic state willing to live side by side with Israel. Then you come and see us, and we will make compromises. But we're not going to be the first to compromise while Hamas is sitting in Gaza. We're talking with Rabbi Marvin Heyer. Uh, Some people say, you know what, in spite of the approval of billions in aid in various administrations, uh, presidents like Jimmy Carter and, and Barack Obama, they have antipathy toward Israel. They have a bias in favor of, of Palestinians. Do you share that view? No. Let me say this. President Obama has provided a tremendous amount of aid to Israel. They signed a, a record amount of aid to Israel. It's just that I think that he feels, as President of the United States, Israel's closest friend, Israel's going to dance when we tell you to dance. Now, Israel says we're not dancing because we would be committing suicide when you have two separate entities. You have to answer the question. And the United United States has influence in the United Nations. Why didn't the United States say on the Obama administration, we demand a Security Council meeting on Hamas? They they never said that. Is there hope uh, in Israel that President Trump will be more active against Israel's enemies, at least not remain neutral when Oh, there's uh, no question that he will be uh, more friendly to the state of Israel, and that he will be an enemy of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas. They, they, Hamas is not in good shape now. They do not have 
an occupant in the White House that would have any sympathy or would be willing to turn the cheek and place the emphasis on the Israelis. Trump is going to place the emphasis on the Palestinians. You want peace? Show it to me. We're talking with Rabbi Marvin Heyer, 1-800-222-KBC, the number if you'd like to join the conversation. Let's go to Marcus. Uh, you're on Royal Oaks and Rabbi Marvin Heyer. Welcome. Hey, guys. I think what John Kerry said is that if there is no two-state solution, then the alternative is a one-state solution where Israel will either um, formally or informally have basically controlled the Palestinians, and that would be an apartheid state because um, Israel would not be granting them legal rights. Well, I, I would agree with you that, uh, you know, I would agree with you on this thing, that if there's no two-state solution, unfortunately, the way it looks right now, it would be closer to a one-state solution. But a one-state, uh, I'm a big advocate of a two-state solution, but only if you can eliminate Hamas from Gaza. Without that, I prefer what we have now. But that's what John Kerry is saying. If Israel continues building settlements, the two-state solution is... Well, that's that's why I, I would I would I I would say that look, Israel wants to exist, and in a three-state solution, Israel is in danger because the Muslim Brotherhood takes their takes their uh, takes their orders from the twelfth Iman, you know, who lived in the lived in the twelfth century. They don't take their orders from the United Nations. They get up in the morning and they say, uh, "We got to do jihad," and Israel doesn't want to live with that. Israel withdrew from Gaza unilaterally, pulled everyone out of Gaza, said to the Palestinians, here's your opportunity. What did they do? They installed a terrorist organization as the head of Gaza. That's what they did. All right, Marcus, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Let's go to Steve. Uh, you're on KBC with Rabbi Marvin Heyer and Royal Oaks in Doug. Greetings. Hey, Steve, you're on the air. Yeah, hey, look, uh, you know, I was listening to your conversation here. Israel's done everything they could to make peace with the Palestinians. You know, I'm not Jewish, but I have a friend who's Jewish, and we were talking about this. I said, you know, before they gave the Gaza Strip, I think Israel ought to show their hearts in the right spot and give them, and give them some land to show the world that they, they really do want peace. And my friend, you know, said, you know, it's not going to work. They don't want peace. And, uh, then, you know, Israel, uh, you know, until they... Rabbi, your reaction? I, I agree. That's, that's my point. My point is the United Nations has focused on the wrong issue. Lose the issue of settlements for now. It is not the major obstacle to, to a two-state solution. Gaza and Hamas and honoring terrorists, that is the major obstacle to a two-state solution. Rabbi Marvin Heyer of Simon Wiesenthal Center is joining us. i got a question for you about the Secretary of State. Uh, it seems like a lot of people think he's sort of a big X factor. Uh, Tillerson, the head of Exxon, uh, what do you expect in terms of his impact on American policy in the Middle East? Well, he knows the players. He's a negotiator. I think there'll be other people in, 
in the uh, State Department that will be appointed, that will be the hands-on people running the day-to-day operations. And he will be the State Department's top negotiator, for which he is qualified. And he won't be making the decisions. The President of the United States will make the decisions. And, uh, you know, he's indicated very clearly he's going to place the onus on the terrorists. He's going to say, show me you want to live side by side in peace with the state of Israel. He's not going to place the onus on the settlements. Any chance of trying to unwind that Iran deal, or do you think it's just so locked and loaded that there's nothing really the well, Trump administration I, can do about it? I think that, you know, once they made the deal, it's a very bad deal because it says it didn't ask the Iranians to stop their uh, international terrorism. They're the main sponsors of terrorism around the world. So Iran still remains in shape as the leading terrorist organ- state in the world. And uh, that was a a very bad deal. In other words, it's very limited. They got all the benefits. They got lots of money. And what do you think they're going to do with their money? They're not building democratic institutions. When they collect all that money, they just have more opportunities to continue their worldwide terrorism. Trump advisor Steve Bannon uh, took a lot of negative publicity over alleged anti-Semitic statements. Are you concerned about that as the Trump administration kicks off? Well, any time that anyone uh, says something anti-Semitic or uh, any, uh, whether it's bigotry, anti-Semitism, we will condemn them, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or Libertarians. But I would say that Alan Dershowitz, who is a liberal Democrat, has stated emphatically that he did not believe that Bannon was an anti-Semite. All right, Rabbi Marvin Heyer of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this important issue, and uh, we'll check in with you again. Thank you. Take Bye. care. 823 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, Nazis in Taiwan, unfortunately. You don't want to miss that. And you don't want to miss the update on the traffic from Bill Thomas. How are things looking? 906 The Time on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks, your host this week for Doug McIntyre. Hope you're having a wonderful, relaxed holiday week. Well, one guy that's relaxing a little bit is uh, Sheriff Lee Baca. Uh, he, uh, he wasn't found not guilty, but uh, 11 out of the 12 jurors in his uh, recent federal trial uh, voted not guilty. And... Uh, it was kind of a surprise for a lot of people with us to help sort this out. Patrick Healy, reporter for NBC4. Patrick, happy holidays. How you doing? Royal, happy holidays to you as well, and thanks so much for having NBC4 on this morning. Well, you know, you've covered so many high-profile trials, Patrick. I wonder if, if you shared a, a reaction I had. It seemed like this Baca trial it kind of went bang-bang pretty fast. I mean, you know, we've had the Spectre trials lasted a long time, O.J. famously, uh, month after month. Uh, did it seem like this one was a, just a little more efficiently put on uh, than, than many high-profile trials here in L.A.? Um, Well, I have to tell you, the U.S. Attorney's Office has gotten very proficient. They've done this trial so many times. That's true. They're good. They've got practice at it. Yeah. The audience needs to understand, and we need to understand, that the U.S. Attorney's Office has already proven there was this conspiracy in the L.A. Sheriff's Office while Lee Baca was still sheriff to try to conceal a witness, to try to thwart the FBI's investigation. But what this particular case could not prove, <clears throat> excuse me, was the uh, sheriff's involvement in it. 
Yeah, and I think that's the key because, I mean, a lot of folks said, my gosh, this is a no-brainer. What, it was eight or nine guys up the ranks from lower-level guys in the sheriff's department. You work your way up to the number two guy, Tanaka, the the number two in command in the sheriff's department. They all either plead guilty or they're found guilty. Uh, You know, they're behind bars. They think uh, Tanaka's reporting next month. And so... With all of this background, I think a lot of people's attitude was, well, we know how Baca felt about the FBI meddling with his jail. How could they not get him? And yet um, it, it just seems like they didn't have the smoking gun. Is that the perception that the, that the jury thought, well, there, there's some smoke there but no fire underneath? Well, Roy, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Clearly, Lee Baca was very upset when he found out that the FBI was investigating his department. And there was evidence presented during the case that in that conference, that meeting with the feds, with the U.S. attorney and with the acting director of the FBI in L.A., uh, the sheriff is saying, um, I'm the GD sheriff. They're my GD jails. He was very angry and what he saw was meddling. And what he also saw is the FBI doing very risky things like smuggling a phone into the jail to this informant inmate. And obviously having a cell phone in the jail, I mean, that opens the door to a number of of really dangerous situations. But what the prosecution could not show is that it was Lee Baca who directed the illegal activities. Um, you know, they, they had no trouble proving that Paul Tanaka, the undersheriff, was directing much of this, but they couldn't make the link to Baca. And it, and it was quite interesting because uh, some of the key testimony was that uh, uh, after a meeting between uh, the sheriff and the undersheriff, Tanaka, Tanaka came out and told the other sheriff's managers, I've never seen the sheriff this upset about anything, so here's what you have to do. But the trouble is, that all relies on Paul Tanaka saying this, and Paul Tanaka had already been convicted. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it was the government? We're talking with Patrick Healy, of course, a reporter for NBC4. Do you think it was the government's plan all along to start low, work their way up, get guys to flip, get guys to say, well, you know, I'll point the finger at the big guy if I can get a, a lighter sentence? I mean, that's, that's sort of the classic defense perspective. Was that the plan for the U.S. Attorney's Office to, to have the big climax with Sheriff Bach? Or, or do you think that there really wasn't any way that they could know how the evidence would turn out in terms of whether they could really get the sheriff himself? Well, I, I think you're right, Roe, that it, it was structured so that they started the initial cases, in fact, were not about the conspiracy, but were about the uh, civil rights violations that were the subject of the initial violation, the, the allegations that excessive force and unnecessary mm-hmm. force was being used against inmates. So, and then there was also the smuggling in of the uh, of the cell phone, and a deputy was uh, convicted of accepting a bribe to do that. So those cases were handled. Then they moved on to the conspiracy, and they got a number of convictions on the conspiracy. The the final step is coming to the sheriff. They could not get that, but remember, this is not over. Uh, because it was a mistrial, because it was not a unanimous, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, Royal, of course, you could explain this better to your audience than I could, but there is a possibility that this case could be retried, and there is the second case that was split off from this one, where Lee Baca is accused to lie, of the lying to the FBI during an interview and saying, no, I never told the deputies to go threaten the FBI investigator. I didn't know about that. So Baca faces that separate case, 
And, of course, gee, do we want to get into the whole Alzheimer's defense that could come up there? Yeah, I mean, that's the bizarre part about this. And, and the, the judge was faced with a, with a tough problem here, and I thought, I thought he came up with a very creative solution. Basically, what they had against Baca was 2011, he allegedly cooked up the conspiracy. They were going to intimidate the FBI agent. They were going to get into the, into the jail and, and move the inmate around. And then separately, two years later in 2013, Baca allegedly lied to investigators about what he knew about what went down two years before. And as you suggest, the Alzheimer's and dementia evidence was not allowed by the judge in trial number one. So this jury that voted not guilty 11 to 1, they didn't hear that evidence. Who knows if they heard it you know, outside the courtroom. But now if there is a second trial, they will have the opportunity to hear it. Going back to the first trial, Patrick Healy, do you think that Baca, based on your talking to the lawyers, because I know sometimes they did chat with you, do you think that Baca ever seriously considered testifying, or do you think his sort of default setting was just too risky? A lot of high-profile defendants just don't roll the dice, and they just hope their lawyers can do the job for them. Well, and I know that's uh, that's always what you expect. Defense attorneys should give their advice that you shouldn't you shouldn't let the client testify. I, I did talk to Nathan Hawkman about that several times, and I, I think he was being level with me when he said, "Look." We want to see how this goes. We want to see how the testimony turns out. And, you know, they do not have to make a decision until the very end. And uh, and they waited until the very end. And then they just said, yeah, uh, we're, we're confident what we got. We do not want to put him on the stand. And in uh, and, and retrospect, obviously, it was, it was a successful strategy for them. We're talking with Patrick Healy of NBC4 about the Baca trial. You know, you mentioned some of the evidence. I, I noticed Baca was pretty absent from the email trail that Tanaka and a lot of the underlings were involved in, where they were basically admitting the, the conspiracy. He was overseas at an International Terrorism Commission meeting when, when a lot of the planning went on. And, you know, add in this aspect of it. I mean, if the world knows you hate somebody, it would be kind of stupid to go out and kill that person. You know you'd automatically be the suspect. Everybody knew. Baca made no secret of the fact that he was furious that they were, you know, had given a, an inmate a phone, that, that the feds were messing with his jail. For him to then commit a felony and doing do something illegally when he's made it clear to everybody how angry he was about that. To me, that would be kind of stupid. Now, I don't know if that sense got through to any of the jurors. Uh, I, I, the jurors haven't been too gabby. I guess one of them said, uh, well, we think one juror was biased. Uh, that's why they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't go along Hold with the majority. Out, yeah, yeah they, and, and one said, well, these people wouldn't, one of them wouldn't deliberate uh, enough. But I just wonder if the jury might have gotten that sense that there is no smoking gun evidence here, and how stupid would it have been for the sheriff to have committed a violation of the law when everybody would suspect that he might be guilty. Well, Royal, I think there's a great point. That's a great point you're making. And I think there was also a parallel theme that came through loud and clear to the jury. And this came from the defense. And it is rooted in reality that anybody who was observed Lee Baca or has ever spoken to him knows Lee Baca is a true believer. He has a vision for how the sheriff's department should be run. He is an innovator. He is an idealist. I mean, he did things like setting up classrooms in the jail uh, to help inmates be rehabilitated so when they left the jail, they could actually get a job, start a life. Lee Baca believed in all this, but the big question was, 
Did he follow through on it? Did he make sure that the deputies and his managers in the jails were doing things, following civil rights laws, making sure that it was all handled properly? And there's a lot of evidence that he was not able to adequately supervise and follow up. But there's no question that Lee Baca wanted to do the right thing. And he said, he you know made it abundantly clear that he thought it was extraordinarily dangerous what the FBI was doing. He thought the FBI was meddling where it should not meddle. Um, and he thought that the informant, Anthony Brown, needed to be protected because he'd been outed as a snitch and that therefore he could be targeted by other inmates. Um, and so it all boils down to, did it go beyond doing what was necessary to protect the inmate? And did others like Paul Tanaka step in and say, no, we're going to hide this guy so the FBI can't find him and thwart the FBI's investigation? And I wonder if the fact that Baca was kind of a father figure, popular figure on the L.A. scene, he was sheriff for, what, about 15 years. I wonder if that worked in his favor because these other guys, I mean, Tanaka, people would hear his name, but the others were, were pretty faceless. Uh, I, I wonder how much of a factor that might have been in the, in the jury deciding we just don't think this guy deserved to go to jail. Well, uh, he did have, until the final years of his uh, tenure as sheriff, Lee Baca had a wonderful reputation. Of course, he came in in the midst of uh, controversy uh, way back when, when he, when he started decided to run against Sherman Block and, and that horrible situation where Sherman Block passed away right before the election. So there was nervousness at the beginning, but Baca became a very popular sheriff and then just it all kind of unraveled at the end. And, and in fact, uh, Lee Baca retired in 2014 rather than facing a re-election that year. We're talking with Patrick Healy of NBC4 about the Baca drama. And one of the, the weirdest aspects of it, Patrick, to me, was recently uh, the Times and others have been reporting on the fact that back last summer, when there was a plea deal uh, in the offing, only six months behind bars for Baca, and the U.S. Attorney's Office supported it. They were behind it. They said, okay, we've put all these other guys away. But as to the sheriff, and they argued in a brief to the judge supporting the idea of the six-month uh, plea deal, they said, well, you know, the evidence isn't so strong uh, for, for Baca here and there. And the judge said, you know what? I look at the evidence, and I don't see this as a six-month case. I don't think that would be fair, and the judge made the tough call to reject that. But it's kind of ironic that the prosecutors six months ago are arguing, oh, boy, the case is a little bit lame, and then sure enough, uh, comes up the, the, the jury vote 11 to 1. So now we look to the future. I guess the question is whether the prosecution is really going to push, because as I understand it, they haven't really announced whether they'll push for a second trial in spite of the 11 to 1 vote. And even if they do push for it, of course, the judge could always say no, uh, based on all the evidence and, and the lopsided vote. I'm not going to allow that to go forward, even though, as you say, a second trial uh, could be in the offing after that. Well, Royal, um, you bring up the judge, Percy Anderson, and he is a pivotal player in this entire matter. I mean, uh, <laughs> sometimes us lay people dismiss, uh, dismiss judges as just the, uh, the referees at trials. But Percy Anderson has overseen this entire series of cases, and he is making the key decisions. He is the one who decided six months was not a tough enough sentence for Lee Baca. He thought Lee Baca should face further punishment. And the irony then is that in compelling, in, in throwing out that agreement between the prosecution and defense, in compelling the case to go forward, well, 
didn't compel it. I mean, the prosecution could have decided not to bring it, but they kind of had to at that point. It was the judge himself who set the wheels in motion that ended up in, in this mistrial and Lee Baca not being convicted. And at this point, not facing any prison time, even though the judge thought six months was not enough. And, you know, I have to say, I think you have to give uh, kudos to the judge for uh, sticking to his guns on that. It would have been very easy six months ago for the judge to say, oh, you, you both want a deal and you're both agreed on six months. Would have been very simple for him to just have, you bring out a rubber stamp and that's it. But he said, no, I see it differently. And, you know, the, the thing about judges and people love to second guess judges because, you know, politically unpopular decisions come out. The thing about judges is they're in the courtroom. They look people in the eyes. They've read the entire file. And it's a little troublesome to me to see people wanting to hamstring judges. And for example, and this is an unrelated matter, but you know that uh, that awful case of the Stanford swimmer and the sexual assault. Oh, yeah. and, and people yeah. were just all over the judge uh, for giving you know, probation or a super light sentence. And now that's prompted a law that says in, in cases of a certain type of a sexual assault where somebody is, is not capable of, of giving a response, you shall not give probation. Well, what they're saying is we don't want the judge to have the discretion, even though they know the people, they've seen the people, they've heard them, they have, have an instinct about their credibility. Now, if a judge screws up, as the judge sounds like he did up in that Palo Alto case, fine, get all over him, you know, remove him from the bench. But to change the rules, it's like the old expression, hard cases make bad law. To change the rules and take the discretion mm -hmm. away from the judge, that that I got a problem with. Uh, let's move ahead, Patrick Healy, to the, the future in terms of a prospect for a plea deal. Is there some buzz about maybe an overall plea deal? Because they could plea bargain as to this trial number one, as to which there was an 11 to 1 not guilty vote. They could plea bargain as to trial two regarding the 2013 alleged lies where the Alzheimer's evidence is going to come in, or they could plea bargain as to both of them. And of course, then they'd certainly have to get the, the judge to approve it. Is there talk that there might be some behind the scenes conversation about trying to make this whole thing go away? Well, there certainly will be conversations, but let's face it, it's very awkward ground to revisit because when the prosecution, the U.S. Attorney's Office analyzed this case at the beginning, as you pointed out, they realized the weakest part of their case was the one that just ended in the mistrial, where they thought they really had Baca was on lying to the FBI. Um, and, you know, that is a pretty clear-cut case. Uh, during this trial, there was testimony from the L.A. Times reporter uh, who interviewed uh, Baca and who said, yeah, Baca told me that uh, he, he knew about, he told the deputies to go talk to the FBI investigator. Um, and you know, that's fairly clear cut. Uh, but the judge threw out the plea bargain on that aspect of the case. So how do you revisit that and, and, and not make all that went, went by in the past look unnecessary? Uh, it, it's a very awkward situation. Well, we'll see if uh, there's more legal drama in 2017, or maybe we'll get an announcement. The, the whole thing is going to go away via a plea bargain. Either way, Patrick Healy will be watching you on NBC4 in 2017. You have a wonderful New Year's. Well, Royal, you as well. And again, thanks so much for having us on this morning. No problem. You take care. You Nine, as well. 923 The Time here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas, find out how things look on the roads.